Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I never thought about it. They were the enemy. I never thought about it till years later. And the reason I thought about it, I took the life, probably 12 to 20 men, somewhere. These guys never had a chance to reproduce children. And that bothered me. These guys were denied that. And I've thought of it in that vein. It's still within touching distance in history. The long shadow of the Second World War, the biggest and deadliest conflict the world has ever known, which drew in more than 30 countries and killed around 80 million people still looms large over modern life, but for a precious few scattered around the world, it lives on in their memories. And then we went to Guam. And that's a day that I'll never forget. William Gosh is one of them. We went down the ropes, got on board the landing craft, and there's ships all over the place. Battleships, cruisers, destroyers, God knows what, all over the horizon. What an experience. He's now 99. And stories like his from the battlefields in Japan and Guam, a tiny island in the Western Pacific, could easily be lost forever. But there's one person who spends day after day on a lonely mission to preserve every single one of these accounts for the generations to come. By preserving a World War II veteran on camera, 
I know that their great, 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 great grandchildren are not just going to get to know their name, but they're also going to get to know the way they speak, the way they talk, the way they laugh, the way they tell their stories, their, their characteristics. The Imperial War Museum does that and they have oral histories and so do other museums and institutions. But no one was doing it as systematically as Rishi was doing it, as far as I can tell. I mean, he was trying to get every single combat veteran. I'm on a mission to meet and interview every single World War II veteran of the Allied countries. That mission has taken 25-year-old Rishi Sharma around the world, filming interviews with World War II veterans for his YouTube channel. But he knows that for him, it's a race against time. Occasionally he'd realise that a combat veteran he'd been trying to reach had died and he'd be so sad about it. He'd felt as if he'd failed in some way and that he should have got to them. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the extraordinary story of one man's pursuit to interview every living World War II veteran. My name is Will Pavia. I'm the New York correspondent for The Times. I write about East Coast news and I also write features and interview people for the magazine. And Will, you wrote a particularly moving article about one person you'd, you'd come across. Tell us a bit about him. How did you first come across Rishi Sharma? I first saw Rishi in a couple of news stories that had come out of California in 2018. One of them was a sort of Sunday morning breakfast show kind of television interview in which we saw this sort of very young, this teenager, this Asian kid, and he was going to visit World War II veterans and interviewing them. There are real superhero World War II vets out there, and I want to meet them. So in 2014, as a junior in high school, Rishi made it his mission. I ditched so many days of high school to go do an interview. You were skipping school to go interview vets? Yeah. I started writing. And he was posting videos featuring his interviews on YouTube. And what really struck me about the interviews was, I mean, not only was this kid clearly very interested in these veterans, but he was also incredibly knowledgeable. And he'd be asking sort of people who were D-Day veterans, sort of about how they managed to get through some of the hedges of Normandy and what kind of ordnance they were up against and just all these very in-depth questions. So he was clearly somebody who knew a great deal about the subject. And he also had this sort of funny kind of rapport with all these veterans who seemed to take to him. This is an Arasaki 31 caliber rifle. Have you ever fired it since? No. No, I have not fired it. Could you hold it up a little higher for us, please? How's this? That look better? Yeah, you look like you're in the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I interviewed him over the telephone in, in 2018. He was very charismatic. And so I'd first written about him in 2018. And a few months ago, I had this other call from him. And I was amazed to find that he was still doing it. I remember thinking when I first interviewed him, well, perhaps he will do this for a couple of years and then he'll go to college and start having a normal life. But he was still on the road, uh, running out of money, essentially living out of a rental car. 
And I remember being astonished about that. And so I arranged to meet him up in Buffalo, in upstate New York, uh, where he was interviewing a few veterans. And so the first time I met him, I, I came out of Buffalo Airport and I was, I was sitting on a bench writing a piece <laughs> about something else. And he showed up in this little car. He was thinner than when I remembered seeing pictures of him in 2018 scratchy beard, white t-shirt. There was a toothpaste tube under the handbrake in his car and lots of stuff in the car, which made me think that it clearly was true that he was sort of living in the car. And he was also very comfortable in the car. I remember him telling me that it was almost like an extension of his body by this point because he spent such a lot of time on the road. I mean, what did you make of him? Because that's quite a, a remarkable first meeting. He almost seems a bit too good to be true. And so I remember being worried that I'd discover that I'd come all this way and that it was really all a sort of fake or something. And it's not. He was very charismatic. He talked a lot, you know, just constantly. For a journalist, it was all quite quotable. I mean, it felt like very much like an open book. And I wondered what all this time on the road was doing to him and how he was holding up. He was clearly worried about the fact that he was running out of money and he wasn't sure what he was going to do. You've ended up actually going on the road with him as he goes around bits of America meeting veterans. Tell us a bit about that. What is that like? What is his day-to-day -day life like? The first thing we did was we were driving to somewhere in the suburbs of Buffalo to interview a Navy veteran. The stop sign, oh. turn right onto Fountain Street. What was I saying? Turn right onto Tremont Street. It was a beautiful, very clear autumn day. And we showed up at this house. And I remember thinking, what are they going to make of us? Rishi had said to me, oh, he's told me that he's going to have a friend there in case I'm a Japanese spy. Oh, really? This guy, yeah, so we were going to interview a, a veteran named uh, Louis uh, Grozeski, who's 99. And he'd asked his friend Art, who is a, a mechanic who used to do all his cars, to be there. So Art greeted us at the door and sort of brought us in to Louis's uh, living room, where Louis was sitting, uh, sort of waiting for us. And, um, and so there were two th quite striking things. One was that as we set up, Lewis talked about various things in his house, including the stairlift. He had like a chair stairlift and he said, how much do you think it cost? And um, <laughs> Rishi said, about 7,000. And uh, Lewis was like, that's right. And, and Rishi kind of knew all about the stairlift. That's so funny, for 20-something. He just turned 25 and he was very familiar with stairlifts and all kinds of other things about what it's like to be 99. He said to me at some point he thought he'd interviewed more people who were over 100 than anyone else. The other striking thing was what Rishi did, which was while we were setting up, he was very charming and he introduced himself to Lewis. And then he also rearranged Lewis's uh, living room. Like He moved all the lights around. We spent a lot of time covering up the curtains because he was worried that there would be glare from... It was beside a road, his, his house, and Rishi said there was glare from passing cars, was tracking across the wall and would track across Lewis's face. And he kept sort of saying, we want to make you look as good as possible. This is going to be what, how people are going to remember you. And we want, we want you to look as good as you possibly can. And I remember Art at some point busting in and being like, I mean, he's going to think he's a movie star after this. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> Could on. you see the effect it was having on him, having somebody fussing around him like that? Yes, you could. And it was quite touching for him that he had someone taking such trouble to get it right. And just before the interview began, and I saw Rishi do this several times, he knelt at Lewis's feet and he said, listen, sir. And he sort of launched into a speech, which is all about how many people died in World War II and how many people were injured around the world. 
and what an in- important historical event it was. And he asked Lewis to sort of not leave anything out. He wouldn't force him to talk about anything that was traumatic if he didn't want to talk about it. But he said if he could try and be as clear as possible and try and put us in his shoes, as it were, when he was remembering these things, that would be a huge help. And so he sort of prepped Lewis for the interview in a way. And he reminded me a bit of a sort of film director talking to an actor before a shot, you know, just sort of saying, this is how we're going to do it. And this is what I'm going to talk to you about. And this is kind of what I need from you. And he's trying to get sort of the best recollections of that moment. I mean, Rishi said, you know, it's a very important story and people want to visualise what you went through and they want to understand what you went through. And sort of put like that, I think Lewis was sort of delighted to, to help. I mean, that is remarkable because I imagine a lot of these veterans, you know, go through life with nobody wanting to hear their stories necessarily. I think that's right. In some cases, of course, we all know the stories of people who came back from World War II and didn't want to talk about it and never told their children. And in my experience, and I think in lots of other people's experience, it's sort of been much later in life for many of them, perhaps when they have grandchildren, that they start to talk about it more and they're more open about it. And I think in Rishi's case, he is almost like the grandchild showing up and getting people to talk for the first time. I mean, that that must be something that's quite odd to watch, that this 25-year-old, he hasn't been to university, he doesn't seem to hang out with people of his own age. And the hardships that he's going through in order to be able to do what he's doing. I mean, just tell us a bit about that. What was it like watching him for those few days? He doesn't eat very much. He sleeps in his car. He's driving around. I mean, I sort of tried to feed him myself. And he said, no, it's okay. I've eaten this morning. You want any tea? No, no, I'm fine. I don't drink anything except water. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'll get you some more water. Salt and pepper on the table there, okay? Great, thank you. You're welcome. Mate, I'm really sorry that you're not going to be able to do anything. So how are you surviving, Richie? I mean, how are you... Money-wise? You do eat something, right? You... Yeah. You've lost all this... How much weight? You said you saved off £34? Yeah, that's what they said. This year? Yeah, I used to be £155, but now I'm like 120 something Crazy. He actually told me beforehand, he said, listen, just so you know, I, I try not to eat when I'm interviewing people because I don't want to have to get up and go to the loo. And also when I'm driving around in my car, I don't want to have to stop. And so he said, you might want to bring some food or, or eat before you before we meet up. He was worrying about me, basically. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's taken a toll on him. And I, I think also in his car, he said to me he doesn't really have anyone his own age to talk to. It's had all kinds of surprising effects on him. I think also he gets very attached to these men many of whom are at the end of their lives and who who die, who pass away. And he'll then get phone calls from people saying that this guy that you knew and whose story you, you recorded has died. And he'll be really upset. And what is it like for, you know, watching him when, as you say, he doesn't seem to have many friends his own age. It feels a bit like his life is on pause while he does this project. and It's been years now. It does. And I must admit... Uh, It's tricky because I don't want him to bankrupt himself doing this. And as far as I can tell, he was sort of running out of money. Initially, he started a a GoFundMe kind of fundraiser online, which raised $120,000. And so this was when he first set out. And so he suddenly had all this money. And so when I first spoke to him, he was sort of jetting around the country, speaking to people. People would say, oh, please, could you come and interview me? And he'd go. And so he was in Canada and then he was in L.A. and then he was somewhere else. And he was like, I'm going to go to Britain. I'm going to go to Australia. And he's done all that. He's been all over the world finding veterans and speaking to them. 
Even when I got the 120 grand, I mean, you're talking to a frugal family guy. I mean, I understood that that money might not go forever, so I need mm. to stretch it. Yeah, yeah. So there are many times when I would, if I have a flight and I get there, you know, if, it, if my flight's at 5 p.m. and I have an interview somewhere the next morning, yeah. instead of booking a place that night, I'll spend the night at the airport. Right, right. I've done many airport stints like that or, you know, sleeping in the car. But gradually the money started to run out. That money was supporting him and it's dropped now to about, I think he said about $300 a month, which isn't really enough to keep him going. And when I spoke to him, he showed me his bank account. He had about $1,100 in the bank. I spoke to him a few weeks later and he was in Maryland. I must admit, I don't know what his situation is now, but... Yeah, it's fair to say he, he didn't have much longer left and he was in a rented car. I, I did worry for him in, in that respect. What did you make of the whole project, of what he's trying to do? I mean, I think it's a wonderful project. I think I remember when I first spoke with him, I was once a local newspaper reporter in South London in an area where there was, I suppose, like anywhere else, there were lots of war veterans. This would be early 2000s mm. when we were coming up on these sort of big anniversaries of D-Day. I remember sort of going out and speaking to prisoners of war and speaking to people who'd been in the D-Day sort of landings and just being amazed that they were sitting there. And in some cases, it felt as if their story had never been told before. And I remember thinking, oh, someone, someone needs to get on this. Someone needs to, you know, and of course the Imperial War Museum does that and they have oral histories and so do other museums and institutions. But no one was doing it as systematically as Rishi was doing it, as far as I can tell. I mean, he was trying to get every single combat veteran. The, the things that stick with me, like I remember talking to one of the veterans we spoke with who, whose name was William Ghosh. His story was so incredibly vivid and he told it so well. And at some point he tapped his head and he said, it's all in here, it's all in here. It seems like it's like, say, 80 years, you wouldn't believe it, 80 <laughs> years later. But these things are just as vivid in my mind as the day they happened, as I'm relating them as well as I can relate them. My memory hasn't changed. He was on oxygen and he was 99. And I remember thinking, gosh, it, it is all in there, but what happens when he's not around anymore? It's gone. And I suppose, thanks to Rishi, it's now on a YouTube video that you can go and watch. It is a remarkable achievement. And at this point, if you're anything like me, you're probably wondering, what makes him do it? What makes a young man from California give up his 20s, scrimp and save, go hungry at times, to spend night after night sleeping in a car so that he can spend all day recording the accounts of World War II veterans? What makes him do it? I had to find out, so I got in touch with Rishi. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Alice Thompson, a columnist and interviewer at The Times. It's the best job in the world. I get to interview the most extraordinary people, comment on the most fascinating news stories, travel to the most bizarre places, and inform, analyse, infuriate and entertain. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Rishi Sharma has now interviewed over 1,700 World War II veterans. And when we spoke, he was in Minnesota to interview some more. But I really wanted to know how all of this started. I grew up in Southern California in a middle-class family. And ever since I was a boy, I've been fascinated by the Second World War. You know, you could ask these World War II veterans anything about the past 120 years, and you'll get a firsthand answer as a response. Uh, These are people who grew up when horses were a viable means of transportation, and they're likely going to see a human on Mars. And so there's just such a breadth of uh, experiences that you can tap into when it comes to this generation. Take us back a step. You've been doing this now day in, day out for years. Take us back to the moment it all started. How did that happen? What what made you think? What made you get up one day and think, this is what I'm going to do with my life, but all the personal costs that come with it? In my sophomore year, I remember vividly reading a book called Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. It's a compilation of firsthand experiences from the front lines in Europe, uh, written by different World War II veterans. And I remember reading one chapter about a man named Lyle Book. He was a 21-year-old new officer sent to the front lines right before the Battle of the Bulge. And 
he was in charge of an understrength platoon, which is usually 42, but he has 18 men in his command. 18 of them, you know, and half of them were killed and half of them were captured, including himself. And they actually helped stop the entire German offensive because those 500 Germans were delayed taking care of these 18 soldiers. The entire uh, German front lines was halted behind them. And they didn't know it till years after the war, but it contributed to the fact that there was enough time for the Allies to bring in reinforcements and stop the entire German attack. And I was just amazed that at 21 years old that you could do that, you know, and I was 16 years old and I had read that excerpt in the book and I just knew I wanted this man to know that because of what he did, some kid in Southern California exists and gets to live a full and a free life because of the hell that he went through. And so I looked him up and I found out he was still alive. And this was California time, maybe 8.30 at night. And he was in the Midwest. So it must have been close to 11 p.m. And for some reason, I couldn't wait. I just wanted him to know how much I appreciate what he did in World War II for me, and not just me, but millions and millions of other people. And so I called him. In the U.S., it's quite easy to find people's information on the internet. And, and I, I found him on an online phone book. And I, and, I, and I ring his house. And this lady picks up. And I say, is this Lyle Book, the war hero? And she, says, she starts laughing. And she says, no. But uh, if you call in the morning, he'll talk to you. And so that morning... I called him and he was so friendly. He was so happy to hear that a young person, you know, had read the book and uh, was interested in the war. And it struck me at that time, I'm holding the book open in one hand to his chapter. And in the other hand, I'm holding the phone, talking to the actual person. And he's telling me about different lines in the book or how they kind of uh, censored a part of it to make it look cleaner or you know, he's telling me the inside story, the inside scoop of what happened. That's amazing. But that could have been where your adventure stopped. You'd read about this man, you'd hero worshipped him, you'd managed to get hold of him. What makes you extend that mission? What makes you go on and want to speak to so many more? I had such a positive experience interacting with Mr. Book that I decided to call a few other veterans from the book. Please leave your message. Thank you. I hope this reaches you in good health, sir. I'm trying to get in touch with the Marine. I was learning things that you don't read about in history books. I was learning the real story of what it was like to be on the front lines. I was learning the intimate, personal stories of my heroes, what their upbringing was like in the Great Depression, the struggles and the triumphs that they've had in their life. And I feel that by connecting to the veterans and spending time with them, some of their ethos and personality and values rub off kind of into the ether, and I can kind of ingest it, and it can kind of become part of who I am. I was talking to one of my teachers about how I wanted to meet these veterans in real life, but I had no idea where to go, and, and she suggested that I check out the retirement home down the street, and I'd never even been into a retirement home, and I rode my bike there one day after school and I walked in the front door and I, I said to the receptionist, I would like to meet some World War II heroes, please. 
And she looks at me flabbergasted and she had no idea what to do. And she says, let me have you talk to the director. And this uh, man comes out, a middle-aged man with a thick mustache. And his name's Lloyd. And he says, young man, come in here and tell me what you want to do. And at that point, I just wanted to make some friends. I just wanted to hang out with some of my heroes. But when he wanted to know why I wanted to meet the World War II veterans, I had to come up with an excuse. And that's really where the whole interviewing concept came from. It was the first thing I could think of, of why, you know, I wanted to hang out with these World War II veterans. And I told him I wanted to interview them. And he says, well, you're the youngest person I've seen walk in these doors in a long time. And I'm so happy. I'm going to personally introduce you to all the World War II veterans we have. And so he introduced me to 25 different veterans. He went door to door with me, told them that I was a young man from the local school, wanted to talk to them. And they all were so agreeable to talking with me. Uh, I went home that day and I, I, uh, I had to beg my mom. I even cried to get my first camera from Costco, you know, with her help financially, of course. And, you know, after getting a camera, I, I would go to that retirement home every day for like the, le- the next two months interviewing World War II veterans. And it was just such a neat experience and such a positive experience. And I decided I had to figure out how to do this full time. And the first person you approached, Lyle, was obviously delighted. You know, he called up asking if you could speak to a war hero. And similarly, at this residential home, they must have been delighted. It sounds like, you know, the idea that you were the youngest person who'd gone, I imagine for a lot of them, they weren't getting that much contact from the outside world. And suddenly there's somebody who's so enthusiastic and so genuinely interested in their stories. Has it always been so easy, though? You know, when you when you find veterans, do they always want to talk? Because I imagine for many of them, they won't have talked about some of this for years. I'm the same age a lot of the veterans were when they were in combat. I do yeah. a lot of research. Does that make it easier for them to open up to you? I think I think so because they treat me like I'm one of the guys. I generally enjoyed going and spending time with World War II veterans just to hang out, even if I wasn't interviewing them. And many of those veterans who I started out interviewing in my local community, I stayed in touch with, you know, throughout the school year and would visit them. I remember one veteran in particular, one of the first ones who I interviewed out of state. He was in the 1st Infantry Division and was in the first wave in North Africa, first wave in Sicily, first wave Omaha Beach. His outfit was known as, you know, being one of the toughest outfits of the war. And I remember after interviewing him, he would always call me and just say, where are you at? That's how he would always start off the, the, the conversation. Tell us about him. So I was doing interviews in Indiana And I came across an article about a World War II veteran who was elected alderman of his town. An alderman, similar to city council. And it just said he was a Marine. I looked him up on the internet. His name was Bill Gosh, similar to what I did for Lyle Book. I found his phone number and I called him. Anyways, his daughter answers the phone. And she was very kind of like skeptical. Who are you? You know, I verified, you know, who I am and... You know, she she was able to look me up on the internet and she handed the phone to her dad. And Mr. Gosh, you know, and I were talking. I said, sir, what outfit were you in? 
He says, I was a Marine Raider. I was like, oh, wow. The Marine Raiders are an elite force. And we yeah. were talking and he was telling about some of the campaigns he was in. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this veteran is incredible. And so he lives in Buffalo and I was in Indiana, which is probably the equivalent of Bristol to Aberdeen, I would think, if my geography is correct. I said, I have to meet you, sir. And he was very open to it. So I, I drove like over the next day and a half and I, I met him. And we did this interview, and it was an incredible interview. We started running into going up the hills, and Japanese are starting to shoot at us. And we moved around, oh, from one community to another. A lot of rice paddies killed one woman. She was running across the rice paddy. This was dusk. She was running across the rice, but she was carrying a rifle. And at that point, I didn't know if it was a he or a she. Didn't make any difference. Bingo. Went up the next morning, and sure enough, here it is, a woman. Japanese. Was she in uniform? Kinda. I, by, by that I say kinda. She had a hat on. I still got, I kept her hat and it's around here someplace. A hat that the sides come down on it. It had fur on it. Thing with a anchor on the top of it. I thought that's pretty nice. I'll keep that. And I kept it and it's somewhere around here. Uh, he had never really opened up about his war experience, but it just took someone who knew about his campaigns. It just took someone to be in that position and happened to have a camera recording his interview. It went on for like three hours. It was just him and me just having this conversation as if the camera wasn't there. And I ended up putting it on the internet on our YouTube channel, Remember World War II, and, and it got like a million, I think it's close to like a million and a half now, people that watched it. His birthday was coming up when I put it up on the channel, which was about a month after we did the interview. And so I did a call to action for our subscribers. I said, hey, if you don't mind, please write this hero a thank you letter. It will mean the world to him. What a lovely thing. Completely free, but something that will really make an impact. It just really meant a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. At that age, to suddenly feel like a hero, you are doing remarkable work in honoring the sacrifices made by so many of these veterans. But you are sacrificing quite a lot of your own life to do it. I mean, you're 25. This is now the mission that takes up your days. How much is it affecting your own life? That's an interesting question because I started these interviews at an age when And even today, it's still part of my formative years. So I don't really know what life is like without doing World War II veteran interviews. I didn't have the best childhoods growing up. I would either be some weird kid at college with no friends or, uh, or no girlfriend, or I could be doing what I'm doing now. For me, I'm living the better life. 
I don't see it as a trade-off. I mean, yeah, I've never had a girlfriend. I don't have people my age who I hang out with or associate with, but I get a meet <laughs> and I live in a car. I mean, you know, I, I guess I am homeless, but for me, all that stuff, it's hard to complain about like having a pimple or not being cool or not having this many Instagram followers or or not being wealthy when you've met people who've had their arms and legs blown off. It's just the perspective. That's the most important thing I've gained in the interviews is perspective. You know, I can live in a car, but it's not like anyone's trying to kill me. You know, it's not like artillery shows are going off. But, you know, my ultimate goal is really to partner with an organization to get all the World War II veterans on camera. It's not about Rishi interviewing all the veterans, right? It's about how can we create this movement? We have the technology. Everyone has a phone with a camera on it. We could literally, if the world wanted to, I did the math. If we wanted to interview every single veteran from all the countries, we could do it in two weeks. We have the know-how, the wow. technology, the manpower. Literally, I have a question guide, a step-by-step -step question guide on our website where there's a video tutorial. This is too simple not to do. We have these incredible veterans still amongst us. And we should not wait till there's only one left to uh, really shower them with attention. So we get up on the beach. And here's what they call a hummock. And I'm looking at this hummock and I can't get through it because it's so dense. And everybody running all over. So I turned, ran down the beach. All of a sudden, a voice says, stop. Loud and clear in my head, stop. And I stopped. And with that, I look, and here's bullets. Hitting the sand, right? If I had taken another step forward, I wouldn't be here today. I said, thank you, God. And I turned and ran up to this hummock and I sat down and I prayed. And I turned around, found a place through, got up, went on with our assault. thing. There's a God. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, 
The Times New York correspondent Will Pavia and the remarkable chronicler of World War II, Rishi Sharma. You can find all of Rishi's interviews on his YouTube channel. Search Remembering World War II with Rishi Sharma. And if you want to contribute, you can find him on GoFundMe.com or at RememberingWW2.org. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.